0: This morning we find Jesus still hunkered down with Nicodemus, a Jewish ruling scholar in a quiet corner of a Jerusalem evening. As we've seen, Nicodemus came honestly wondering, I believe honestly wondering, who Jesus was and what was his game plan. What is this man up to? He's done some marvelous things. He's taught some amazing principles. And so Nicodemus wants to know more. Jesus begins by using earthly examples of heavenly things. You know, you must be born again, using birth, that, that very physical thing to speak of a spiritual truth. He, he used the example of the effects of the wind. As the wind, you know, you, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you hear it. You see the effect of it. But Nicodemus wasn't getting it. Even with those examples. And so Jesus turns to two familiar Hebrew passages. First, Proverbs 30. The proverb of Agur. He quotes that. Something that Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, would know. And then he turns to the story of the serpent on the pole in the wilderness. Numbers 21 tells that story. Another very familiar story, every Hebrew child hears growing up, so Nicodemus no doubt would hear that and could make the connection. But I think even at this point, you get down to about the end of verse 15, Jesus speaking, Jesus teaching, Jesus trying to explain what the deal is to Nicodemus. And if we we were there, I think we would see a look on Nicodemus' face of confusion, of not quite getting it. And so beginning in verse 16 of John chapter 3, Jesus speaks in the most simple of terms, the plain truth of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Lord, I don't know how you could have said it any more clearly, any more plainly for us to hear and understand. And yet we in the world still complicate things. I thank You, Lord. I thank You that You chose to use earthly examples, that You chose to give us the entire history of Israel, as Paul wrote, that we might learn by their example, that we might see those things and and, in these days understand better. And Father, I thank You for speaking truth. But we realize, as Jesus so often taught, that a heart that does not want to receive the truth can't even hear the most simple of truths. And so I pray this morning, Father, all morning long, I ask that your Spirit will be laying back the layers of our hearts to hear the truth. And that if anyone walks into the fellowship this morning, anyone enters this building with a heart that's closed off, perhaps wounded or stony or rebellious, Lord, that there will be an open avenue to hear the plain truth of the gospel. And I ask, Father, for those new in faith and for those who have been a long time in this journey, that You will give us fresh insight into this most wonderful truth ever spoken. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in December, December 23rd actually, the article came out on Newsweek.com entitled, The Bible So Misunderstood It's a Sin. Brian shot this to me via email last week, and I read through it. Let me just give you a couple of excerpts. The Bible, so misunderstood, it's a sin. They wave their Bibles at passersby, screaming their condemnations of homosexuals. They fall on their knees, worshiping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God's frauds. Cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed with less care than they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists, who, unable to find Scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove they are honoring the Bible's words. He goes on, "...the Bible is not the book many American fundamentalists and political opportunists think it is, or more precisely, what they want it to be. Their lack of knowledge about the Bible is well-established." A Pew Research poll in 2010 found that evangelicals ranked only a smidgen higher than atheists in familiarity with the New Testament and Jesus' teachings. Americans, quote, revere the Bible, but by and large they don't read it, wrote George Gallup Jr. and Jim Castelli, pollsters and researchers, whose work focused on religion in the United States. The Barna Group, a Christian polling firm, "...found in 2012 that evangelicals accepted the attitudes and beliefs of the Pharisees, religious leaders depicted throughout the New Testament as opposing Christ in His message, more than they accepted the teachings of Jesus." Written by Kurt Eichenwald, he goes on in vogue criticizing Christians, attacking the legitimacy of the Scriptures, and debasing sound biblical doctrines, including the divinity of the Christ." Reading through this article, I will just tell you from my experience in teaching through the Bible, and I've had a few years at it now, his history is completely wrong. His sources are dubious, his conclusions are biased, his generalizations are sadly stereotypical. I've heard this all before. And typically from people who are who are trying to push away or smoke screen, screen the truth. Now, you can't deny the polls. You can't deny the sad truth that many, if not most, evangelicals don't know the Bible. Oh, it's the Word of God. Oh, we trust it. Oh, we, we believe it with our lives. And yet, can you quote it? Do you know it? Are you in it? Do you feed on the Word of God? I mean, that is an incredible challenge for the church today because sadly in many churches today, the Bible is not being taught. Now, biblical themes, sure. Biblical ideas, biblical concepts. But man, you got to be careful with that stuff. Because when you get into the realm of themes and ideas and concepts, rather than the simple plain truth of the Gospel, it is very easy to get off in our own persuasions. You know, what's important to me? What matters in, life, in my life? What has my experience been? Rather than what does God really tell us? I read this article all the way through. Forced myself to. And I gotta tell you, my first reaction was I was ticked off. Just ticked off. Partially because I know people are gonna read the article and they're gonna accept his faulty conclusions. He talks about things like, well, it was 400 years before the Bible was even ever put together as a book. Not true. Not true. It was 200 A.D. It was within 150 years or so that the Bible was compiled. And we know long before that that copies of all the books were being passed around. We know the Hebrew Scriptures were compiled long before that. So he's just not right in what he says. But I know people are going to read it and go, oh, oh yeah, see, that's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I'm not one of those fundamentalist evangelicals, you know. Well, you know what? I'm not an evangelical. I just follow Jesus. I'm I'm not a fundamentalist. I just believe in the truth. And I think that's what we're called to. And I do believe that if we will adhere to the Word of God, we can reshape the public opinion. Now, I don't know that we have that much time. <laughs> but I read these things and it, and it is frustrating. And a lot of times what we as Christians do is we kick back. We react. That was what I was doing earlier this week. Just, oh man, I gotta, I'm gotta, i going to have to share this and I'm going to have to right these wrongs and explain to everybody what, re- what really is going on here. And then I sat down to read... This morning's teaching. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Martin Luther called this the miniature Gospel because it sums up in a single verse the love of God for all people. All people. Even those who reject us. Even those who rebel against God's Word. Even those who try to undermine the truth. God loves all... I've got a a message for the Kurt Eichenwalds of the world. God loves you, man. And I realized in that moment, that needs to be my first response. If I were to run into him on the street after reading this article, if I were pointed out, hey, that's the guy who wrote that article, would it be my reaction to run up to him and go, dude, you are so off... (laughs) Wow, are you an idiot? (laughs) That's my inclination. That's my flesh. That's what I would want to do. What would Jesus do? And how should I respond? John 3.16 Hey, Kurt, whatever you think about the Bible or Christians, set all that aside because there is a simple truth you need to know. God loves you. Amen. God so loved the world. Now we're going to camp out in verse 16 for most of the morning. We're going to do all the way through uh, about verse 21. So all of those verses finalizing, finishing up this, this teaching of Jesus, this amazing, marvelous, wonderful teaching of Jesus that I was going to do the whole thing in one morning, <laughs> three weeks to do this, but you know, that's the deal. And we're going to spend most of our time in verse 16 because there's so much right here. And then we'll kind of quickly conclude the last five verses. So stay with me. Don't freak out. The game doesn't start until (laughs) 3.30. The first six words alone are the stuff of, of profound truth. They are both revelational and, as Nicodemus would hear them for the first time, they are revolutionary. We begin with the first word, for. For God so loved the world. Don't skip over it. That's the purpose. It's the purpose. It's a word that shows cause or reason. In other words, John 3.16 is the reason behind the two previous musts of Jesus' teaching. You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? For, because, you see, God so loved the world, you must be born again, because God so loved the world. Jesus must be lifted up on the cross, because for God so loved the world. Without this verse, we could misconstrue those statements as harsh and demanding. You must be born again. Well, what if I'm, you know, want to go about it another way? Let me tell you why you must. For God so loved the world. Jesus must be lifted up on the cross. What kind of a father would do that to his son? A father who so loves the world. Four, it's the purpose. It's at the center of the whole thing. The purpose of the gospel. The move of Jesus into this world. The whole plan of God from day one to the final day. Four, because God so loved the world. That's the cause, the purpose. And it's divinely personal. That's the second thing to know with the second word. For God. For God so loved the world. The Bible doesn't say for Abraham so loved the world. Or for David so loved the world. Or for Obama so loved the world. These guys are not messianic. They're just messy. <laughs> just like you. Just like me. And it's not Gabriel so loved the world or Michael so loved the world it's not angels or patriarchs or kings or politicians it's God so loved the world do not miss that 2 Corinthians 5:19 says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation not the word of conflict not the word of argument not the word of defensiveness The word of reconciliation, which starts with the love of God. God so loved the world. The the greatest human interest story ever, because God has human interest. God is so interested in you and me, for God so loved the world. It's personal, gang, because you are personal to God. You, You may have heard before, if you were the last person on earth, Jesus still would have died for you. I know that's true. I I can prove it to you, but continue on. He has an intense passion for you. See, the purpose is that He loved the world. It's personal because it's God who did so. But for God, so loved the world, Jesus says. It's a little word, but it's impactful. Because Jesus doesn't just say, God loved the world. God so loved the world. In fact, in the Greek, the phrase so loved is hautos Agapao. Autos. autos. It's so, and it's a marker showing a higher degree. It's not just agapao. It's not just agape, if that weren't enough. It's autos agapao. It's so loved. So much. I just love you so much. He didn't just love, he so loved. And what Jesus is drawing us to here is the depth of His passion for you that just saying agape wasn't quite enough. So loved. Titus chapter 3 verse 3 says, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God so loved. Now, someone might say, Rick, I've heard you rail on this world. I know, I have. I've heard you talk about the evil and the sin sickness and how how wicked things are and how you just wish you could be out of here. But God always balances that out. You see, in my flesh, you're right, I do, I hate it. I hate the evil, I hate the headlines, I hate the stuff going on, I hate the lies, I hate the deceit, I hate all of that. But God so loved. And so what does He say to you? Say to me, I want you to be like I am. Now I don't want you to love the world as an embracing it as your final destination, but I want you to love the people. I want you to so love like I so love. And by the way, this purpose that's so personal, that's so passionate, is also incredibly profound because the soul gives way to agape love. For God so loved. And yes, that word is agapao. In the Greek, the highest form of love. Unconditional, unmerited, unwarranted love. Now, Nicodemus may have had some sense of God's love for Israel. I mean, that had been proclaimed for well over a thousand years. Jeremiah 31, verse 3 tells us the Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. That is the Israelites. So Nick would be familiar with that. For Jesus to say, for God so loved Israel, Nicodemus would be like, well, yeah, I know. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. That's why I'm a leader of the Jews because I know how God feels about us. But Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, jumps the Jewish fence with this radical and revolutionary statement. This revelation that would shake up Nicodemus' theology completely. It's not just that God loves Israel, Nick. It is that God so loves the world. So loved, so unconditionally. 1 John 4, verse 8 tells us why. God is love. John repeats it in 1 John 4.16. God is love. He says, The one who does not know love does not know God, for God is love. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, for God abides in Him. Why is that so profound? Listen. Listen. If the gospel declares anything to us, it's that God is love. And that being the case, it's His nature. It's not just what He does. It's just not, it's not, for us love is a decision. For God, love is who He is. I am not, by nature, love. I have to choose to love. God doesn't choose. He just is love. He can't be anything other than love. He can't not love because He is love. It's it's part and parcel of the entire character of God as we see in Jesus. He is love. That being the case, His motivation for everything He does is love. And that's sometimes what the world misses. Love must be the starting point of any biblical doctrine. Theology, teaching... Any understanding of the Bible, if you start from any position other than love, you will get off track. You will misunderstand. You won't, you won't get it. Kurt Eichenwald, in his, in his, you know, expose, if you will, and his going after Christians and their view of the Bible, what he's going after is a misconception of what love is. He's missing the fact that the Scripture itself, as written, as passed down through the centuries, is the explanation of the love of God. But people say, well, God's a harsh, caring God. You didn't start from the place of love. You started with an assumption of meanness. And have found your way into proving God is harsh and judgmental. You're not starting with love. If you start with love, you will come to a different conclusion. And by the way, love must be the starting point for any sharing of the Gospel. Remember we said before, we are not here to win arguments, we're here to win souls. And we have to start from the place of love. We begin with God's love, not another person's sin. Oh, dude, you need Jesus. You are messed up. I can't believe what you're doing, what you've just done. I mean, clearly, you're lost. We start from love. Paul would later write in First Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong, or a clanging cymbal. Wouldn't it be great if any time we spoke without love, <laughs> gong! <laughs> Look, I really think your problem is, (laughs) and yet that's the truth. We are just a loud, obnoxious, annoying noise. Hey, I like cymbals on a drum set like anybody else, but if you get up there and you just start banging on a cymbal, after a while we're going to go, could you just stop? And so, why does the world say, would you just stop? I think sometimes because we come at it without love. We want them to join the team. We want them to understand our perspective. We want them to accept our truth instead of coming at them with love. And any time there is not love, it's just noise. Jesus is the revelation of the love nature of God. Which is why I so enjoy spending time with Jesus in the Gospels. Watching His interactions with people. He is just incredible. In the temple, at the wedding feast, here with Nicodemus, at the well with the Samaritan woman, His teachings, His healings, His feedings, and above all, at the cross, Jesus reveals to us the love nature of God. You cannot look at Jesus and not see something of the love of God in everything He does. Even when He gets angry, you see His love. God is love. And by the way, His love is singularly peculiar. 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 Word number five. For God so loved the world. Rick, you're going to make something out of the? Oh, yes, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Gang, listen. God so loved the world. This one. The world. Only one. Just this one here. Is there alien life on other planets? I'm sorry, I I really... I think the correct phrase is undocumented life on other planets. Is there... um, Was that not loving? I don't think... I know, I'm fine line, right, Ray? Is there alien life? Is there more out there? Is it like Jody Foster in Contact? Well, it's a big universe. It'd be an awful waste of space if there wasn't, you know, something else. <laughs> Honestly, I haven't been out there, so I, I can't answer that. I do know someone who has been out there. <laughs> you see, Jesus claimed on more than one occasion to have descended from and ascended to heaven. John 1.51, John 3.13. He's been there and back again. He's seen it all. You would think that Jesus would know something about extraterrestrial life, and yet He never once mentions another world. Another planet. God so loved the world, you know what Jesus does talk about? This odd little orb. Jesus talks about this peculiar little planet, unique in all the universe. Now I know, I get it, I've read the articles, I've seen the science. I know there are other planets out there that we think are perhaps sustainable, that they can sustain human life. Planets are looking an awful lot like Earth, man, you know. It's highly likely that that there are other planets just like this, water on them and, and, and could actually sustain life. But this is the planet to which Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected. The world. Why are you getting at this, Rick? Because people search the universe for life. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life that overflows this mortal existence. God so loved the world. Gang, He so loved the world. He's got amazing planetary plans. Don't believe me? Read Revelation 20, 21, and 22. Just read through it without any bias. Just say, what does it say? It will blow your mind what God has planned for the future of this planet and then beyond. God so loved the world. His purposeful, personal, passionate, profound, and peculiar love... Get this is panoramic. The Greek word for world, I've always found this interesting, is cosmos. For God so loved the cosmos. Well, Rick, that just undermines everything you just said. Because if He loves the cosmos, that's the entire universe, it's all the other planets. So there's probably life on other planets. So let's just move on. <laughs> Don't let the word cosmos confuse you. Because in the Scriptures, 185 times, out of the 186 times the word is used in the New Testament, it is translated and simply means by context, world. The Greek word cosmos. We would say the cosmos, and you start to think of the stars and the the planets. And when it's used in the New Testament, it's just world. Let me give you some examples. Matthew four, verse eight. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. What world was he talking about? Mark eight thirty six What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Which world? This one. John 1 verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Cosmos, 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 cosmos. World, 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 world. John 17, 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, Jesus says, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Is Jesus talking about the cosmos? Or is He talking about the earth? Again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, maybe the most specific example, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In every instance but one, the context indicates earth. Wait a minute, Rick, what about the other instance? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, ladies... <laughs> Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Where's the word? Adornment. The word adornment. It is the only time cosmos is translated adornment. Now, granted, for some ladies, cosmetics are their cosmos. (laughs) It's my entire world right here. I'm saving the planet. You know? Again, thin ice, right? It's just very thin this morning. Dear sisters, can I just encourage you, not from my perspective, but from the Lord's, don't get hung on the physical. Don't get so caught up on the outward adornment Jesus invites you, dear sisters, He invites you to the inward adornment which is far more beautiful to the Lord. Far more attractive. I'm not saying, don't wear His makeup. And I'm not like Josh. I'm not going to make you feel bad for wearing a, a jersey today. <laughs> Just recognize all of us, this is outward stuff here. And God is looking at the heart. That's The world that He's concerned with, that's the cosmos that matters to Him. That's what He wants to see adorned. For God so loved the world. Okay, prove it. Prove that God so loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Listen up, cosmonauts. (laughs) Jesus, in that one sentence deals with panoramic and intensely personal at the speed of the sun. He goes to the personal. For God so loved the world that whoever, from the cosmos to the individual, from the larger globe to you, God so loved the world that whoever... I I remind you, Jesus is not speaking from a grand cosmic podium. His face projected on a 16,000 square foot high-def jumbotron. NASCAR has one on the Charlotte Motor Speedway. 16,000 square foot screen. We got to get one of those. (laughs) That would be cool. Take up the whole thing. And we put my face on it. (laughs) And watch attendance decrease at the speed of light. I tell you, (laughs) Jesus was not standing up preaching to the masses here. I remind you, He is one-on-one when He says this. That's significant. Jesus, who was purposeful in everything He did, everywhere He went, He didn't just preach. He knew His audience. He knew who he was speaking to. We take John 3.16 as the glorious verse. I mean, it's, it's probably the most well-versed known among Christians and even non-Christians today. The John 3.16 verse. People have heard it. People repeat it. People assume, man, that's a big deal. And Jesus spoke these glorious words to one guy, all alone, at night, in Jerusalem, in the quiet. Just one man heard this for the first time. Just one woman would hear for the first time that Jesus is the Messiah. John chapter 4, we looked at it on Wednesday night. The Samaritan woman, one on one, he says, I who speak to you am he. Wow. He doesn't say it to the whole town of Sakar and Samaria. He doesn't stand up on the edge of the temple and shout to Jerusalem, I am the Messiah! He just tells her. He just told Nicodemus God so loved the world. The next story, John chapter 5, he goes through a cadre of all these lame, sick, dying people around the pool of Bethesda, and he goes to one lame man and says, Hey, do you wish to get well? why does he do that because jesus was always concerned with the individual the god in the, the gospel is that personal yes he feeds the thousands yes he heals the many yes he cares for the multitudes he looks on the people like sheep without a shepherd but he always makes time for the one he's always thinking about the one it doesn't matter who you are a, a, a well known teacher in israel or a nameless woman at a well, it doesn't matter who you are. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we've talked so much about that, but I remind you again, it wasn't when we got it together. It was while we were sinners. It was in the middle of our mess. That's when He died. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And Paul says in Romans 8.35 Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the amazing thing to me here, the gift of God to whoever is the Christ. That He gave. He gave as a gift. He gave His only begotten Son. It had to be. Couldn't be any other option here. The Greek word there is monogenes. Some translations are watering it down these days. It's only begotten. That's what the word means. His one Son. His only begotten monogenes. And John will use the phrase five times. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten, the monogenes, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the monogenes of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. John 3.16, that we just read, John three eighteen, that we're going to read in just a moment here, and 1 John chapter four verse nine. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent His monogenes, His only begotten Son, into the world, so that we might live through Him. Five times, and of course, five is the number of what in the Bible? Grace. Five is the number of grace. And so, John the Apostle, in the Gospel of John and in 1 John combined, in his writings five times, will call Jesus the only begotten Son. And Jesus is intentional, again, in the phraseology, in the teaching that He's doing with Nicodemus here. And there's a reason why Jesus says here, the only begotten Son. Why? Well, Nicodemus, remember, is Jerusalem's Bible answer man. He is the authoritative teacher on the Hebrew Scriptures. He has heard this phrase before. Only begotten. If he's paying attention, he should know exactly what Jesus is saying. What do you mean? Psalm 2, verse 6. God speaking says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a messianic psalm. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Those two together are two of the most... Messianic of the Psalms talking about the king who would come the one that God would send he must be only begotten the only begotten of God Messiah must be David's prophecy declared that Messiah is God's only begotten son and if Nicodemus was thinking in the time or maybe over the next few days began thinking about he gave his only begotten son only begotten wait a minute I read that in Psalm 2 That's what the Bible says about Messiah. Is that what he's saying? Bible students, what does the phrase, the only begottenness of Jesus, refer to? Any ideas? Is it his birth? Huh? What?
1: Born
0: again. Okay, it speaks up, get this it's his resurrection. The begottenness, today I have begotten you, is not talking about Bethlehem. It's talking about His resurrection. Well, how do you know that? Acts chapter 13. Make a note of this. We've talked about it before. you got to get this. The only begottenness of Jesus, when God says, today I have begotten you, the day of begottenness was resurrection day. Well, wait, Jesus was born before that. Begotten and born, two different words. Well, Jesus existed from time immemorial, I mean, throughout all eternity, right? Right, exactly. The begottenness of Jesus happened on Resurrection Sunday. How do you know? Acts 13, verse 32. Paul is in Antioch. Paul's still kind of early in his ministry himself, but man, he's already fired up. And he says, We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. That God has fulfilled this to our children in that He has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That, listen, Paul says, that He raised Him up from the dead. No longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of Jesus. The only begotten Son, Jesus, is the only one who has died and resurrected from death to live forever, never to die again. He is the only begotten. He is absolutely unique. He's the only God who put on flesh, who then lived and died, and then resurrected into eternity. That's Jesus' only begotten. The resurrected Son of God. And and I'm sitting on this because His monogamousness, His resurrection, is absolutely vital to believing in Him. There are people who believe He lived. He taught. Some who would believe that He did miraculous things. And He died. And that's it. And if you stop there, you stop short of everlasting life. You don't get there. You must believe, Jesus says, in the only begotten Son of God, in the resurrected Son of God. Wait a minute. When Jesus said that, He wasn't resurrected yet. No, He's speaking prophetically. He's pointing ahead. He is speaking words, though it is to one man in one small corner of Jerusalem, He is, as it were, speaking from a cosmic platform to the last 2,000 years of humanity. Declaring this truth across all time. That no one else came from heaven as God in the flesh. No one else died to resurrect from the dead, never to die again. Therefore, no one else can save you and usher you into eternity. Only Jesus. Revelation 1.17 I am the first and the last. Wait a minute, God said that to Isaiah. Exactly. And I am the living one, Jesus says. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What other God was dead and is alive forevermore? And I have the keys of death and of Hades. If I told you this morning that sitting up here on my podium are a set of keys to a 2016 Lamborghini Roadster, all insurance, repairs, and gas paid for life, And I will give the keys to the first one who believes me. Would you believe me? (laughs) I think many of you would do what you're doing right now. Look at me like, you're nuts. There's no way. Larry, you got it. And this morning, Larry will be driving home in his car. Here's the deal people sometimes approach the declaration of belief in Jesus the same way we all just did. They go what? All I got to do is pick up the keys? Jesus says I alone have the keys of death and Hades. I got the keys into eternity. I have the keys out of death. All you got to do is ask for them. All you got to do is believe me. Believe that I resurrected from the dead and have the same intentions for you. Just believe. And we hear that and people go wait what does that mean? And we begin to complicate. What does it mean truly? I asked Cheryl last night, what does it mean to believe? I quoted the verse, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What does that mean, Cheryl? She looked at me like she always does when I ask her theological questions. But she got it. Because I said to her, I said, you know, belief. I mean, what what does it mean to believe? The demons believe and shudder. James 2.19 tells us. So what does it mean to believe? And she goes, it's to give them your life. (coughs) Yeah. How do you know I'm married? How do you know that I love my wife? I I may have mentioned her a few times in here. You've probably seen me with her. What's the proof that I'm in a relationship with Cheryl? I've given my life to her. This life. To believe, let's clarify this, to believe in Jesus is simply to entrust your life to Him. Now, He'll take you right then and there. And understand he will continue to work with you because I can say I entrust my life to him, but there's still an awful lot of things I want to hold on to. And bit by bit, he pries my grimy little hands open and he says, can, can I have that? Okay. Right? Can I, can I have your children? Okay. Can I, can I have your wife? I told you I went through that this summer. Can I have your wife? Will you entrust yourself to me? The beauty of belief in Jesus and trusting yourself to Jesus is you start very simply, okay, alright Lord, take me, I'm yours. It's that simple. And then He begins to walk with you and slowly remove all those things that we cling to that we think are so important that we've got to protect, that we've got to take care of, that we've got to nurture. And one by one He takes those things and says, do you trust Me? Do you trust Me? Will you walk with Me? Do you trust Me? And so while I was saved at the very beginning, I was 10 years old when I gave my life to Jesus and trusted my life to Him, but it has been another 40 years since then of learning how to trust Him. He saved me and He has continued to sanctify me ever since. And all I have to do is believe. Sometimes that is just too easy for folks. Okay, well then let's just, I'll give you a prayer to pray. Very simply, Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, His begottenness, you will be saved. That's all you got to do. I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord. He is the Son of God. I believe He resurrected from the dead. I confess this. Paul says with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. It's marvelous. The plain simple truth, the gospel. Just believe and trust Him with your life. Now, what happens if you don't? What's the alternative to salvation? Jesus doesn't skip over that. He doesn't come back to it at a later date. He says... Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What if I don't believe? Then I will perish. And we can't skip over this any more than Jesus did. The word does not mean die. The word perish in the Greek, apollumi, apollumi, means ruin, destruction, destruction, Loss, and I need you to understand it is not an immediate singular event in fact John quotes Jesus here in the word perish it's quoted in the second errorist middle subjunctive (laughs) that's the verb form why does that matter think about this The errorist means ongoing, continuous action. Therefore, ongoing, continuous ruin or destruction. Whoever believes in Him shall not have ongoing, continuous ruin. That's what it means to perish. It's in the middle form of the verb. Which means the subject ruins himself. The ruin is self-inflicted. The subjunctive, now this is important, the subjunctive form of the verb, so it's aorist, ongoing continuous ruin, middle, the subject ruins himself, and subjunctive, what that means is it may or may not happen. That's the upside. You may or may not perish, okay? What determines that? Not what, who? You do. You determine whether or not the perishing talked about, which is an ongoing continuous ruin, Whether or not that's going to happen to you. Verse 17. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That's why I'm here, Jesus is saying. He's referring specifically to His first coming into the world. God didn't send me to judge the world. Nicodemus, I am here to save the world. That's why I came this first time. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So Jesus is saying, look... Whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life because I came to give you eternal life. I didn't come to judge the world. I came that the world might be saved through me. The whole purpose of my being here, and He says in verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe, watch this, has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten, there's a second use of it there, the only begotten Son of God. Wait a minute. In verse 17, Jesus said he didn't come to judge. And now in verse 18, he says, if I don't believe in him, I'm judged. A contradiction. I got a problem with that. Didn't he say he didn't come to judge? Yes. And he didn't. We judge ourselves. The gist of what he is saying in verses 17 and 18, and 16 really, is the judgment is up to you. You judge yourself. Rick judges Rick. How does that work? This is a beautiful example. F.F. Bruce used it in his commentary. In a gallery where artistic masterpieces are on display... It's not the masterpieces, but the visitors that are on trial. He says, because they reveal the visitor's taste or lack of it by their reactions to what they see. You go to the Louvre, you're walking through there, you come up to the Mona Lisa, you react, you look at this, at this classical, beautiful painting, And the question is, as I stand there, and there was a, F.F. Bruce mentions a pop star, and I don't know who it was, I tried to find it, couldn't find anything on this, back in the 60s or 70s, a pop star who went and said the Mona Lisa is just stupid. The one who came out looking stupid was the pop star. So what does this mean? Does this make fine art judgmental? I mean, is the Mona Lisa condemning us with those beady little eyes and that smug, self-righteous grin? (laughs) Judge me. Listen, responding to Jesus that way is as stupid as someone standing in front of the Mona Lisa and getting all after her for being judgmental. How dare you judge me! Uh, Excuse me, sir, we just need to escort you out of the Louvre. Uh, Would you please come this way? Do you get what I'm saying? Jesus is the masterpiece. And how we respond to Him determines our judgment. We judge ourselves. We stand before Him. We look into His eyes. We consider His nature. We think about who He is. The beauty of art and song and poetry, all of this is it tends to reveal what's inside a person. I've told you before, my mornings driving Hayden down to school in Oak Harbor are nine times out of ten spent listening to his music. This is how Pastor Rick gets to start his day. You know, Dad, isn't this cool? It's great, son. Fantastic takes me like two hours to get rid of the twitch. (laughs) Why do it? Why not just say, no, son, we're going to listen to the news, something soothing. (laughs) Why do you do that? Why do you put up with that? Why do you subject yourself to that music that you wouldn't listen to any other time? Because it's revealing Hayden to me. He knows that. It's telling me what matters to him. It's his language right now. We have some of the best spiritual discussions as we listen to his songs and then talk about what it means and what he's hearing and what I'm hearing and, and how does that influence our walk with Jesus? I mean that's that's our those are our drives. So it starts with this intense music, and it ends with an open hearted son. Music does that. Art does that. It's, it's a window to the heart. We even say, this song, this poem, this painting really speaks to me. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says, Jesus does that. In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, Hebrews 1.2, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. He's the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus is the masterpiece. So I look at Jesus and my reaction, my response to Jesus determines my judgment. It's the verdict. How I respond to Him. F.F. Bruce says, the man who depreciates Christ or thinks Him unworthy of His allegiance passes judgment not on Christ but on Himself. Jesus says, He who does not believe has been judged already. You've already made up your mind. Your eternity, be it salvation or perishing, depends solely on how you respond to Jesus. Which is why, Christian brothers and sisters, our message to the world is not believe the Bible. Though I do, every word of it. My message to the world is God loves you, and I can prove it, look at Jesus. Look at His Son. We need to spend more time talking about Jesus and less time talking about our rights as Christians. In fact, as far as I can recall, when I gave my life to Jesus, I gave up my rights. I'm not going to fight for those anymore. My right for prayer in the public school, and I wish there was prayer in the public school. My right to have the Ten Commandments on a slab in front of a courthouse, and I would like to have the Ten Commandments on a slab in front of the courthouse. But that's not my concern. My concern is to preach the love of God in the person of Jesus to this world. That's it. Verse 19. Jesus said, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil verse 24 everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Hey, we talked about this Wednesday. Some things are hard to talk about. You know the commercial that's out that has you know the, like Hillary Swank standing there with a tear in her eyes, not able to speak trying to talk she can't talk and and you you get this for like 25-30 seconds and then the commercial ends some things are just hard to talk about and goes on to talk about domestic violence and abuse some things are hard to talk about the hardest thing to talk about what did i say wednesday night bible students what's the hardest thing to talk about Sin. sin i don't want to talk about my sin And the reason why sometimes people will push back against Jesus is because, man, if I come to the light, it's all out there. If I come to the Lord, everybody's going to know. It's going to be made clear. Suddenly, here's what's wrong with me, and I don't want to go there. It leaves me feeling exposed, vulnerable, helpless. Man, that can be scary. Which is why we begin with God so loved. You start with the place of love. This is a God who loves you. This is a God who is just waiting for you to accept Him. He loves you. And yet some, Jesus says, some choose to live in the dark. You know, God sends no person to hell. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Except for the devil and his angels. Talking about humanity, God sends no person to to hell. We send ourselves. And into eternity, every person who resides in that place of ruin will know they're there because they chose to be. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge you, I come to save you. But if you don't believe in me, you're judged already. Verse 21, he says, He who practices the truth. He who practices the truth. It's not he who is perfect in the truth. He who practices that. I can practice. I miss a lot of shots, but I will practice. He who practices truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Manifested is phaneros in the Greek and it means to cause, to shine. That my deeds will shine, and it will be known that all of these shining, wonderful, good things are because of Him. Made by Him. Wrought in God. And the idea is that when you receive Jesus, He lights you up. He just lights you up, and you shine with the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. John 12, 36 says, "...while you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light." I have come, Jesus says, as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is the plain truth of the Gospel. Father, would You teach us how to keep it simple? to be a loving people with this glorious message of Jesus. Help us to live by the plain and simple truth of the Gospel. Father, forgive me when I get so wrapped around the axle about so many things, when only one thing matters. And we have seen and we know And Lord, we testify to the love of Jesus. Father, to Your great love in Jesus that brings us hope, that shines eternity before us. And I pray, Lord, that Your love will be more manifest in this fellowship than ever before. From one to another, and for every single person, who walks in the door, every single person who we rub shoulders with in the world, in our daily lives. May we live out and shine the love of Jesus. May we be unafraid to talk about Jesus. And just to tell what wondrous things He has done. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're going to sing this song as we sing. If you have any response to the Lord this morning, I invite you to come forward. Let's stand up. Prayer team, come on up to the front.